Oh, well, good morning. While I'm getting started, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. He's not here, um, but he had a massive influence in my life. He was a farmer before I was even born. He's older than me, um, much older than me. He was a farmer from a little country town that you probably don't know of in uh, the Wide Bay region of Queensland, um, inland of sort of Fraser Island and all that sort of part of the world. Tiny little country town, no main road goes through it. You would have no reason to probably ever go there. And um, he, he felt like God was leading him to go and serve uh, the people of far northwestern Queensland um, in a small regional community there um, by simply going and loving them, using what skills he developed on the farm, mechanical skills, agricultural skills, and his love for Jesus and God's word. And so he, he went as a young man. Um, this was in an era of Australian history that was... Um, it was rugged, very remote. And um, many years later, when my family moved to that same very small regional town in northwestern Queensland, the Gulf Country, um, I was only a couple of weeks old, a brand newborn baby when we moved there. And mid-70s and growing up, my hero was a man by the name of Doug Jones. Um, I don't know how many words I heard Doug speak in my lifetime, wasn't very many. He's not a man who has a lot of words to say. But I can tell you what, Doug for many years and still is a hero of mine. Doug still lives in the Gulf country of Queensland, he and his wife. Um, Doug was a hero of mine for a lot of different reasons. Um, Doug had a Cessna little plane much of the Gulf country was inaccessible and so Doug would get in his plane and fly out to the stations and just serve people how he could and tell them about the love of Jesus. Um, Doug was probably one of the best bushmen that I knew in the sense of his ability to be able to go through the bush and get what he needed and go where he needed and back in those days I used to walk around behind Doug and he was just he was like, you know, for a little kid, he was just like this. He was like a god to me. <laughs> um, what Doug said was, that was gospel. <laughs> um, I learned a lot from him. So much so that as I started getting older and I went to school and school teachers say to kids in kindergarten and, you know, the early years, what, what are your aspirations in life? What are your goals in life? What are the things that you would like to do? What, who would you like to be? And, and I can remember kids saying, I want to be a policeman, or I want to be a fireman, or I want to be a nurse, or I want to be a whatever. And I used to say, I want to be like Doug Jones. And, and, and years later, when we'd moved away from Doomagy and moved back down to sort of the east coast of Australia and sort of what seems like normal Australian society and and I would say, I want to be like Doug Jones. And oh, that's lovely. You know, poor kid. Um, <laughs> Doug was a, 
a missionary, but not, not in the sense of how often we think of missionaries. Doug was a pilot. He was a bushman. He was a, a husband and a friend. And, and, and he was, I guess, my great ambition to be just like Doug. I wonder what sort of ambitions you've had in your life. Um, what sort of goals, what sort of things have you had in your life frame where you thought, that's what I want to do. That's who I want to be like. Can you think of something? I looked up the definition of ambition. Um, it's simply the desire or the determination to achieve success is the dictionary definition of ambition. Or another one says a strong desire to do or achieve something. So again, I ask, what has been your ambition? Do you have any? Over the years, I think ambition, particularly in Christian conversation, in, ch in the church world, ambition has had a bit of a rocky journey. The concept of ambition. Because there have been times when ambition has been highly prized in the Christian world. A, a personal value or a characteristic that was considered even to be essential for successful Christian life, especially ministry. And I think there have been dozens, dozens of books that have been written about ministry approaches and leadership styles that put ambition up on a pedestal. I've even seen it said heard it said from the pulpit that ambition is an essential element of Christian ministry and mission. It's not always called ambition. Sometimes it's called entrepreneurial drive or strong drive or strong goal setting. But no matter the name used, essentially, we've all been talking about ambition and how important it is in your Christian life. If you don't have ambition, then you're just, you know, drifting. Other times in church history, ambition has almost been a dirty word, something to be avoided even. I've heard just as many people say, and I've read just as many books say, that ambition equals self-centeredness. And therefore, it's ungodly. Dozens of books have been written on this message, and that's the message at its heart, that all of them, all of them point to parts of the Bible that tell us to make less of ourselves and more of others. And so they say, therefore, you shouldn't have this sort of ambitious drive. Now, the result of all of that is, I think, a very confused message about the place of ambition in the church today? How should you think about ambition? Something that you should have and foster and encourage or something that you should sort of try and eradicate out of your life? Should we be ambitious? 
Should we be dreaming great dreams for God, working hard with determination to fulfill those dreams? Or should we be making less of our own desires, learning to deny ourselves and work hard for the interests of other people? What is the place of ambition in your life? I think we need God's help. So let's pray and ask him to help us as we reflect on these things and read his word together. And hopefully by the end of it, we're not more confused and we have a sense of God's leading for ways that ambition should be or shouldn't be thought of. Lord, we um, come to your word now. Your word is more important than mine. So Lord, open all of our ears to hear what you have to say today. Spirit, give us understanding of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by saying that I think that there is a dangerous way that ambition can be thought of. What I want you to do here is to take you to something that Paul wrote to the church that's in Rome. And it's a verse that I think relates to the subject matter of ambition may help us to see maybe two dangers. Two dangers that we need to be aware of when we start talking about ambition. So in your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, just one verse, Romans 12 and 3. I'll have it on the screen for you in case uh, you're having trouble following on in your own translation. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, I'll read it out to you. It says this, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. That's Romans 12 and 3. I think there are a couple of key phrases in that that should alert us to the danger here. The ones that instruct us how we should think about ourselves. One states it in the negative. You can see it at the beginning. Don't think like this, right? And then one in the positive. Instead, think like this. Can you see that in the text? Don't think like this about yourself. Instead, you should think like this about yourself. And so straight away, we've got a bit of a clue in the text to say that Paul has in mind a certain way that we ought to think about ourselves. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, now last week we did lots of underlining. That's, that's a place that you could underline in your text. Instead, Think sensibly. Think sensibly. And then there's a, a phrase which says, well, how, how should I think sensibly? Well, you should think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Which means there's, there's lots of different ways that we should think about. We shouldn't all be thinking exactly the same like we're all clones of each other. Like all Christians should be exactly the same. There's never any expectation in the Bible that that's the case. God distributes a measure of faith to each person uniquely. And Paul says, think sensibly about that. So I've sort of deduced here that there's two different ways that I think Paul is trying to warn us about thinking. The first one is this. 
And maybe I'll wrap it up in a phrase, I'll, I'll say it in the first person and, and sort of capture the idea of this first danger. Here it is. I'm God's gift to the church and it all rests with me. That's one danger of having the sort of ambition, the sort of purpose and drive in our thinking about ourselves, which leads me to say that I, who I am, how God's made me, I'm God's gift to the church. I'm God's sort of special, unique gift to this church, and it is all up to me. All right? I think it's plain to see that Paul sees a danger in having an over-realized view of our own importance. It's pretty easy to sketch out examples, I think, of that, where people who are puffed up with their own importance, and we'd probably all laugh and shake our heads and go, oh, yeah, I've met people like that, and that's pretty... Yeah, we can laugh at it, right? Maybe we laugh and we shake our head because we've also met people like that that have made us want to cry over the years. What we don't often do is look in the mirror and ask, is that person me? Am I like that? Now, maybe it's not that sort of, you know, extreme caricature of the egotistical or the narcissist that we can sometimes get. There are other ways that we can think of ourselves more highly than we should think. Sometimes that sort of thinking is the drive behind those whose service, we've been talking a bit about service this morning, but those whose service seems so faithful and even so self-sacrificial. But sometimes it can be fueled more by a belief that no one else can do this job like I can. Or that no one else is as dependable as I am. And that if I don't do it, somehow God's mission and purpose will fall flat if I'm not involved in it. Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. I think sometimes an inflated ego doesn't always crave attention. Doesn't always want recognition even. Sometimes an inflated ego just requires the knowledge that they were the one who accomplished that task, they and no one else. A very real danger to your Christian growth and this church is for you to believe that it will all come crumbling down if you weren't here. I'm very sorry, but that thought simply isn't true. The only reason that a church, the only reason that this church will fall apart is when God is not in its midst. You can keep programs running, that's for sure. You can keep services happening. You can keep people walking through the door. You can keep live streams happening. You can keep ministries happening. But if we don't have God in the middle of it, the Bible says we labor in vain. If God doesn't build the house, the laborers labor in vain. Now, this is all actually gloriously good news. It means that no matter what, no matter who, and no matter how, as long as God is at the centre of this church, we will continue to grow and thrive. 
And it's a bit of a strike against all of our egos sometimes to realize God doesn't need me. He doesn't. Now, I'm not speaking generally here. I'm actually talking about myself right now. Chris Thomas, God doesn't need me. And let me say this as lovingly as I can to you. God doesn't need you. God is completely self-sufficient and God is completely self-contained. Everything that God needs, everything that God requires is found within himself. And so Paul says, let's not think more highly of ourselves than we should think. Which leaves us with the question, though, what is the alternative to that? What's the alternative to that way of thinking? How should we think of ourselves? Well, if we shouldn't think highly of ourselves, doesn't that mean that we should think lowly of ourselves, right? So the other way that we could say is a danger that I think Paul, Paul addresses in this passage um, when it comes to ambition or the way that we think about ourselves, is we could say, well, listen, I'm a nobody and I've got nothing to offer. Isn't that what Paul's saying? Hey, don't think highly of yourself. Okay, well, I must think lowly. I'm a nobody, right? God doesn't need me. You don't need me. I'm a nobody. I've got nothing to offer. Do you know how many times I've heard that? Just out of my own mouth, let alone anybody else's? Maybe the other alternative is to completely minimise ourselves, to, to weed out any ambition or desire and to eradicate it. Maybe we should embrace the idea that we are nobody, that we matter little, that God is so big and so holy that he would never desire our involvement at all. Maybe we should just paint Eeyore on our front door. Right? And we can turn around and say, Eeyore is our spirit animal. Or whatever the saying goes these days, right? On my Christian coat of arms, Eeyore is my emblem. We're going to embrace the sort of sullen, downtrodden, I can't do it attitude. Maybe we shouldn't worry about setting mission statements and vision statements about things that we'd like to achieve as a church. Maybe we shouldn't strategize and just say, well, what have we got to offer? We'll just turn up each week, wait quietly for Jesus to come back and get on with our quiet life, never aiming for anything. Why bother? What difference could I make anyway? And maybe you walk through the door and you say, oh, there are so many people who are doing different things and look at that, I could never be like that. I've got nothing to offer. I can't do that and so I just won't. I guess that logic is actually fairly sound if that's what the verse says, but it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't ask us to not think highly of ourselves. It says, don't think too highly. It's my paraphrase. And that too makes all the difference. Instead of thinking too highly of ourselves, Paul urges us to think sensibly. 
about ourselves. That's in the Christian Standard Bible. The ESV, my other favourite translation, it translates that original language phrase as to think with sober judgment. I think that that this means Paul knows that there's a way of thinking too highly of ourselves, but there's also a way that we can think too lowly. Somewhere between those two extremes rests a sober judgment, a, uh, a sensible and maybe a realistic view of both our strengths and our weaknesses and how both of those play into what we can achieve and what we can't achieve. I believe that this is what the Bible means for a Christian to have humility. I've heard it said that humility is thinking less of yourself, and I don't agree with that. I think that it means thinking of yourself as God does. Not more than that and not less than that. And so I'm, I'm focusing this morning on how do we redeem the idea of ambition? Both from its extremes of being overly ambitious, you know, the big sort of, we're going to achieve everything and we're going to change the world and we're going to have this and we're going to do that. And, and I think we're all a bit tired of that, aren't we? The, the political over-promising. And we can do it with ourselves. We can sort of look up the motivational channels and you hear, although, you know, speak it into existence and tell you you're going to do it and all that sort of stuff. And we just go, oh, we're, we're tired of that. But we also need to redeem the ambition or the understanding of ambition as being the fact that we've got nothing to offer. Why bother? What can I really do in this world? What difference could I make? We need to redeem the ambition from that. And, and as Christians, we sometimes fall into that trap. So I want to help you redeem ambition in your thinking. I want you to develop a sober appreciation for who God says you are. What you can accomplish. And what can be accomplished through people who are completely available to God. As Paul says, I want you to think sensibly about your ambition. So to do that, I want to turn to a verse that I think wraps up both the potential dangers of ambition, the over-realized expectations of yourself and the under-realized expectation, and wraps them up and pulls them together in such a way that shows, I think, how the gospel reshapes our understanding of Christian work and service. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's another letter that Paul wrote to a different church, not the one in Rome, a church in Corinth. In fact, in a few weeks' time, a couple of weeks' time, um, Lord willing, planning on beginning a new series through the book of 1 Corinthians that we're going to spend a fair bit of time in this year in a couple of different blocks. And so I'm looking forward to doing that. So 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to focus our attention this morning, though. And just particular one verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10 from the Christian Standard Bible says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Just one verse. Now, I want to give you some background information to this one verse. We don't have the time to read the whole chapter or the chapter that precedes it. But if we were to, and sort of make a few highlighted points, you would see that what Paul is doing in this one section of his letter... Remember, Paul's writing a letter to some friends of his in another city, a church that he helped start. He visited Corinth at some point earlier in time. He shared the gospel there. People heard the good news of Jesus. They gave their lives over to it. They dedicated their lives to Christ, and a church was born. It started. Paul was there when it began. He, he helped disciple these new Christians. He loved them. He gave... He gave so much energy and time to them. And since then, he had moved away from Corinth. He'd he'd gone on in other places in his ministry. Other churches had started. But Paul, in his role in the early church in the first century, God had given him a job to do, planting churches, establishing churches, encouraging churches. And his voice, his words, many of which we read today in our Bibles, were used by the Holy Spirit to establish the work of the gospel in the early church. Paul was an apostle, one chosen by God, set apart by God for this role. Now, like still happens in churches today, we can have some relational unrest, right? We can get some division, churches that have split, unity, fractures, We start thinking poorly of certain people. What had happened in Corinth was some other Bible leaders, Bible teachers had moved into the area and they started telling the church in Corinth, listen, Paul doesn't have your best interest at heart. In fact, Paul shouldn't really be trusted. Paul is someone that doesn't really care for you and if he does say anything to you, you should just ignore it because God isn't really working with Paul. Paul wrote this letter back for a number of reasons, but part of the reason he wrote it back was he wanted to reinvest into the relationship with this church and just encourage them, hey, listen, God is at work. Now, now read that again. Some people said, Paul's not an apostle. Paul's no one important. Paul's a nobody. And Paul responds to them. He says, hey, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And and God's grace towards me wasn't in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Now, the them he's talking about are other apostles. Now, I don't think that... I don't think when you read through it, it's not Paul just going, you know, really... When it comes down to it, I'm, I'm actually the best apostle. <laughs> or he's not saying I'm the most important apostle. He's making a reference to what God had given him to do. Nearly all the other apostles at, at the same time had different types of ministries. Some of them just stayed in Jerusalem nearly their whole life, encouraging the church there, a really you know, significant church in the first century. Paul recognised that what God had got him to do was Paul spent... So much of his Christian life, you know, traveling to other countries and seeing new churches planted and being shipwrecked and all sorts of things. And I think he's just making a reference to the fact that, listen, my, my ministry has taken me to all different places and doing all different sorts of things. 
But he says, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was with me. So let me go back to a statement that I made earlier when I said, guess what? God doesn't need you. I still, I still stand by that. God does not need you. But he does want you. He doesn't need me. But he wants me. He's invited me. He's included me. And he's done that for you. More than just wanting you, God has actually shaped you. God has designed you. God has rewired you and given you life and new birth to be useful in his kingdom. And there aren't any exceptions to that. Not one single person who has met Jesus has had the Spirit of God move into their life and reorder everything about them so that they would say, like Paul, I'm a new creation. Behold, everything that was is gone now. I died with Christ. And now I'm alive again. And it's God who's alive in me. No one who calls himself a Christian can also say, well, Chris, you know, when God was giving out all the gifts, somehow I was at the back of the line, he ran out. I didn't get anything. That's not true. No exceptions. God's grace is in your life. Now, I, I preach a lot about grace. And by God's grace, I plan on doing that until the day I die. But don't confuse what Paul is saying here about grace. He isn't talking about his salvation. He's not saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace saved me. That's true, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about the fact that he is the last person that should be useful to God's kingdom. That he had little to offer God. And in fact, most of Paul's life, he reflected back on it and he says, in fact, I was a hindrance to God. When God was doing a work in saving people, Paul was actively rebelling against God. Do you remember a little bit of Paul's story? Paul was first introduced to us in the book of Acts as a guy by the name of Saul. That's his Hebrew word. Paul is his Greek or Gentile name. Hebrew name, Gentile name, same person. Um, Saul was the guy that when Stephen, one of the very early Christians boldly was proclaiming good news of Jesus and all the Jewish leaders got incredibly upset, so much so that they said, hey, you're blaspheming. Um, under Hebrew law, the sentence for blaspheming was to be stoned to death. Now, there were certain rules about how you stone someone to death. I mean, we're not barbaric, are we? So we've got to do it orderly. And so one of the rules was there must be a witness. There must be someone who makes sure that we all stone that person to death the right way. And so that the people who were throwing the stones don't get too dirty, they would take their clothes off and give it to the witness to hold on to their robes while they killed someone. That was Saul's job. Saul was the witness. Saul oversaw the execution of Christians. He held the coats of the murderers so that they didn't get dirty That was Saul. Saul. Saul was well educated in the ways of Old Testament law. 
Saul, Saul's ambition in life was to eradicate anyone who claimed the name of Jesus. He hunted them down. He travelled from town to town. He was sort of the Gestapo of the early Christian world, dragging off men, women and children to jail and to execution. And so when Paul, later in his life, meets Jesus, literally gets knocked onto his backside by him, comes to terms with his own sinfulness and his own need for a saviour and cries out to Jesus and his life is transformed, he, he looks back in a letter like this and he says, listen, I am the last person that God should have found useful. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's not thinking of himself more highly than he ought to, nor is he thinking of himself too lowly. My personality type would have led me to go, I've made so many mistakes, I've made so many errors, I've made so many blunders, and not just errors that are like, oh, whoops, and that's an error. Errors like, I deliberately have done that. My personality type is the sort that would just go, well, that's it. I've, I've blown it and I'm, I'm never, I'll never be useful again. And maybe that's Paul's personality type, I don't know, but, but what God was teaching him was where you are today, you're there because God's grace brought you there. And I want you to hear that this morning as well. I'm not sure what your background's like. I'm not sure all about the stories of led you to where you are today and whether they are grand stories that you love to boast about or whether they're stories that are filled with shame that you never want to utter, I want you to hear this morning that God's grace was enough for your salvation and God's grace is enough for your life. And that's what Paul recognised. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul knew that anything God had achieved through him was all about God and it was a testimony to God's kindness rather than an example of Paul's own expertise. But I want you to notice that this awareness of God's grace didn't hinder Paul's effort. He said, on the contrary, I work hard, right? This is my ambition. It's not me just sort of going, oh, well, you know, it's just God. If God does it, then good. I'm just going to sort of plod along. No, Paul says, no, I know that it's God's grace that brought me here, but I am still going to work my backside off for what I think God's doing. If that's what God's doing, then I'm going to jump into that 100%. I'm going to give it everything that I've got, because if that's what God's doing, then I want to be a part of it. Paul pushed into places where others hadn't gone. He took the gospel where it had never been heard. He sacrificed everything for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Paul had desires. He had dreams. He had visions. He had ambition. And yet even then, Paul knew that whenever, whatever came of his effort, whatever fruit happened because of the labor that he put in was ultimately what God was accomplishing and not him. So here's how I want to conclude now the way that we think about ambition. When it comes to ambition, 
Which is the greater danger for you? Remember, there are two dangers about ambition. One is, I think too highly of myself. The other is, I think too lowly. One is, it all, it's all up to me. The other is, well, I'm not going to get involved because what's the point? What have I got to offer? I'm not going to dream dreams and have ambitions of what could happen in the future. Which is the greater danger for you? Some of that might be your personality type. Some of it might be your history, your story. Is it thinking too highly? Or is it not thinking highly enough? What will it mean for you to think sensibly? To have sober judgment about your place in God's service. Right, you, you don't need to compare yourself to other people here. God has shaped you uniquely. By his grace and for his grace, God doesn't need you, but he is inviting you. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples? Hey, lift up your eyes and see the harvest. Right? There's a lot to be done, and there are few people doing it. So go, call out to the God of the harvest, right? The harvest is ready, he says. There's something to be done, and God is inviting you to be a part of it. God has something for you to do. Now, just in case you think that Tim... Last week came to me and said, hey, Chris, we're, um, we're going to have on the very last Sunday in January a bit, of a, um, a bit of an expo of some of the things that were going on in the church. We're going to try and get people to join up to different things, you know, this um, beware of the church marketing thing that Tim was talking about earlier. Just in case you think that, um, let me assure you, I think it was maybe on Tuesday, um, Tim and I sat down for a bit of a plan for things that are happening this week and um, I, I usually tell Tim, hey, I'm going to be preaching or somebody else is going to be preaching. This is what's going to be happening. This is how it's going to happen. This is the focus. These are the key verses. And I, I said to Tim, Tim, I'm thinking about doing this thing on ambition and um, shared within this passage from 1 Corinthians. And, and um, Tim said, oh, I hope that doesn't come across like it sounds like we're trying to manipulate people. Or This is not even really about whether you sign up to be on a roster or not. Or whether you put your hand up and say, I'd like to help pack up chairs or I'd help to, like to help be on the morning tea roster. I'd like to help doing scripture or kids ministries or, or music. This is not even about any of that. This is about what God is calling you to do in service for his kingdom. Maybe it does involve joining up to a team of people who are involved in helping make something happen in the life of our church. But it could just be living the type of lifestyle where you are consistently and constantly keeping your eyes open around you to say, where is God at work and how can he be using me? And maybe that's in your community and your neighbours or your workplace or your colleagues or it could be with a stranger that you meet on a street or it could be getting involved in 
um, working with families who are breaking apart and, and they need someone there to help support either with children or support for parents or whatever it might be. It could be a thousand different things, but God has something for you to do. And whatever that is, work hard, right? Work hard. God's grace is with you. You're able to say with Paul, listen, I know I'm nothing special. I know I'm not. Reality is, you probably aren't either. None of us are that special. But we can all say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He brought me here and he will do something with me. And maybe it's something grand. Maybe you will spend an entire lifetime like my friend Doug Jones. Maybe you'll fly Cessnas and land them on old ant bed strips in the middle of the bush. Maybe you'll wade through bushfires and streams. Or maybe, maybe you'll just get up each day and love your children so well that they see Jesus. And neither of those things is greater or smaller than the other. Because by the grace of God, you are what you are. And whatever it is, you can say, but I worked hard at it. And it wasn't me, it was God at work. So redeem ambition. Not too highly, definitely not too low. But by the grace of God, we all have something to achieve. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your love for us means that you, you invite us, you include us, you desire us. You, you don't need us, Lord. You are everything. You are all in all. You are self-sufficient. Before time began or time ends, you are. And yet, your love for us reaches out. You include us in your kingdom work. You give us something to do. You've given us a gift that we can serve others with and make their life better with. And so, Lord, I pray that you will redeem ambition in our thinking. Help us to have great dreams and visions of what you might do. And then help us to work hard at just simply walking where you're walking. Individually, we pray for that, Lord, but certainly as a church, as we face this coming year, give us wisdom, Lord, to know what are the ambitions, what are the things that we desire to see happen? And then help us just to simply say, by your grace, we are what we are and we will work hard so that your grace can accomplish great things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.